You are listening to American Friends of Israel podcast, a rare opportunity to explore the views of world leaders connected to Israel who come from a variety of fields and explore their thought patterns and perspectives on what lies ahead. And now, welcome your host, Iran Broshi, Chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. Shalom to all friends of the Open University of Israel, Israel's largest and most technologically advanced university. OUI has been pioneering world-class distance education for decades, designed to promote academic justice and nourish excellence among all sectors in Israel's complex society. Today, within these volatile, sad, and difficult times, we serve as a ray of light, allowing tens of thousands of students to study towards their undergraduate and graduate degrees from wherever they choose, utilizing the most advanced digital and analytical learning technologies in the world, all created by our pedagogic and high-tech teams here in Israel, at Ranana, on campus. Our motto is opportunity and excellence. Thank you for joining us. We have an extremely interesting evening ahead, so please stay tuned. Thank you, Yael, for those warm words of welcome. It's a pleasure to have you join us today and also for speaking on behalf of Dorit Beinish, Chancellor of the Open University of Israel and former President of the Supreme Court of Israel, who unfortunately could not join us tonight. My name is Aran Broshi. I'm the Chairman of the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. We're so pleased that you could all join us tonight and today this afternoon for the continuation of our series of virtual events with world thought leaders hosted by the American Friends of the Open University of Israel. We're proud to sponsor these types of discussions on issues related to Israel and the world and are pleased to welcome our audience from across North America, Europe and Israel. The Open University of Israel is of course a nonpartisan educational institution and with over 49,000 students, indeed the largest of Israel's nine accredited universities. We believe sponsoring these types of discussions are very much in the spirit of open dialogue and hearing a range of viewpoints from world leaders on issues related to Israel. And I know we in our audience will very much benefit from Major General Ben Eliyahu's broad perspectives. Major General Ben Eliyahu, Eitan, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us today, tonight in Israel. You've had a long and distinguished career helping shape and drive Israel's military strategy and policy, and you've been a keen observer and analyst around Israel and the Middle East for an even longer time. Major General Ben Eliyahu served for 38 years in the Israeli Air Force. He was an active fighter pilot with a distinguished record of downing Egyptian fighter jets in the Yom Kippur War, Syrian fighter jets over Lebanon in the late 1970s, and in 1981 was part of the Israeli Air Force mission that destroyed Iraq's Ozirak nuclear reactor. Ben Eliyahu subsequently was a base commander, commanded Israel's first F-15 squadron, and was IAF head of operations. In 1996, he was appointed the 13th commander-in-chief of the Israeli Air Force, a post he held for four years. Ben Eliyahu is recognized as being one of the most pivotal leaders the IFF, IAF has ever nominated, and over the course of his tenure focused on extending the range of IAF operations, especially in regard to Iran. Since leaving active duty, he has founded and serves as CEO of the Century Technology Group, was the president of East West Ventures Limited, and he also serves as the board chair of Tikkun Olam Kanabit, 
and of Aeronautics Defense Systems and is co-chair of the Israel National Museum of Science. Ben Eliao holds an undergraduate degree from Barilan University, a graduate degree in strategy and international relations from Tel Aviv University, and is a graduate of Harvard University's advanced management program. We are also pleased that you've had a close association with the Open University and currently serve on the university's high council. So let's, let's jump right into it. The dynamics across the Middle East have been going through some very significant upheaval these past several years, and even more so in recent months. From the, from the significant news of the Abraham Accords to the tensions, threats, and escalating confrontations with Iran over the JCPOA and direct Israeli confrontations with Iran's military as well as Iran's proxies in Syria, Lebanon, and across the region. And of course, US Middle East policy has shifted quite significantly under President Trump these past four years relative to the previous Obama administration's policies and approach, and potentially will shift again under the incoming Biden administration. We look forward to your presentation and perspectives to help us unravel these evolving dynamics and to help us understand the potential impact on Israel for, and for Israeli military and diplomatic diplomacy. I'll come back at the end of your overview presentation for some brief Q&A. Eitan, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to thank you. Thank you, Iran, for the nice words. When I was listening, I wasn't sure if you're talking about me or about somebody else. Anyhow, thank you again. And thank you all. It is uh, not only a, a, a pleasure, but also an honor for me to, uh, to be with you tonight. Uh, I know that you are people from all over. I know that you're friends of uh, the Open University, maybe the largest and the best university in Israel. They have, uh, they, 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 the only thing I can tell you is that I am part of the speakers, of the teachers in this university. So I know how good it is. Um, uh, I was asked this evening to talk about a little bit about, uh, you know, an overview about what's going on in the Middle East, and this is what I'm going to do in the coming 50 minutes. Um, um, I, uh, uh, okay, okay, uh, it is not going to be, you know, like a, a serious, um, a speech, like a speech, only uh, it's, 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 it's going to be more like a discussion between you and me, and I will sp speak about a few things, uh, um, mostly some personal, uh, and maybe you find it different from what you always hear, a personal uh, perspective of what's going on in the Middle East. And if I may, let me start uh, uh, with uh, Lebanon. Uh, which is the smallest, almost the smallest country here in, in, in the region. However, uh, for the last 30 years, actually 40, 45 years, it causes a lot of uh, problems vis-a-vis -vis Israel. You know that early in the 50s and the 60s, we always used to say that the second country to make peace with Israel will be Lebanon. It was peaceful, it was quiet, it was calm. And, and but they were not, uh, you know, brave enough to do uh, to open discussion with Israel. But since then, after the bad guys control uh, Lebanon, this is the most fragile area, uh, country here in the Middle East. Uh, let me let's take a look at the uh, map. This uh, shows you the different tribes all over uh, Lebanon. Such a small country with about 6 million people, but look how many groups, different groups are there here. Mostly, you know, 54% of uh, the uh, Lebanese uh, population 
are Muslims. 40% are Christians, 5% are Druze. And, uh, but they are also divided into sub, uh, you know, tribes, uh, each, each uh, group that you see here on the, on the slide. The, uh, the, uh, the parliament is, uh, co consists of 128 seats, 64 for the Christians and 64 for the Muslims. Uh, when, you, when you say Muslim, there might be Shiites, Sunnites, uh, Alawis, um, you know, they are mainly, mainly these three groups. And the Christians are like anywhere else, you know, the Orthodox Catholics and the, the Maroons here in, uh, which are very special here in, in uh, Lebanon. Uh, to understand what the complicated is, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the regime in Lebanon, please take a look at the right-hand side and see that the president, his name is Michel Maroun, is a Maroni, Christian Maroni. The prime minister is Saeed Hariri, who is a Muslim. And Abiy Aberi is a, a speaker of the parliament. He is also, uh, obviously uh, also, uh, also uh, um, a, a Druze. So, so uh, I don't know, I mean, I know of many kind of regimes all over, but I don't know of any any place that you can run and you can control under this uh, complexity. Uh, this is why uh, back in the uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, the uh, the powerful Hezbollah, which are the Shiites, actually entered, and they from then on, after Arafat was kicked off Lebanon in uh, 1982. The uh, the uh, Shiites, by the leading of uh, of uh, of uh, and Nasrallah, they slowly by slowly they took control of Lebanon. You need to be powerful. You need to be. You need to have an army and ammunition, uh, and they are supported by the all over bad guys all over the world. And uh, from then on, step by step, the Hezbollah. Uh, is since then the Hezbollah is controlling Lebanon. I want to indicate one, one, one more, one, one little thing about that. At the beginning, when they were, you know, uh, spreaded uh, uh, terrorist organization all over, they never were so cl close to control politically to control Lebanon. But since uh, early '90s, Hezbollah is actually almost totally. Uh, although they have like 40 seats or 36 in the parliament, they actually and practically they control Lebanon. They lead the international policy of Lebanon, and they lead you know the connection and the and the uh, and the uh, linkage between Lebanon and the and the area, mainly with Syria, and uh, as well as with Iran. And also, uh, you know, through the back door, also, uh, you know, with the with the with the Russians, and somehow, somehow, even with the Turk. The only thing I want to say is that since recently, they were under so many crises. From from the Israeli perspective, from a security perspective, we think that uh, this area is not a real threat against Israel as of now. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but for, for the time being, it's a calm area when you, uh, when you look at it as a military threat against, against uh, Israel. From here, I want to jump to, jump, uh, to, uh, to, jump to Syria. 
Uh, we all know, you know, the the uh, the uh, civil war, which uh, has been underway since uh, 2006, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, when when we look at it, you know, when it's when it first started. Everybody was thinking that it might take. This was like you know the beginning of the uprising, uh, you know, of the, uh, the 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 Arab Spring. It was part of the Arab Spring, and everybody was thinking that it might take about two or three or four months, and it's all gone. Now we are so many years later, and nothing politically actually has been changed. Syria is practically controlled by the same president, Assad. However, he's like, a, like uh, you know, he is, uh, is actually backed 100% by, uh, you know, by Putin, by the Russians, and also by uh, the Iranians, whom they are continually uh, trying to, to, uh, to base and to send, you know, military bases into Syria. What I want to indicate is a very, you know, uh, uh, a delicate situation. When, when you look at Syria from the eyes of Putin, he needs to play a very a delicate uh, policy. And the reason is that on one hand, he needs the Iranians to support his uh, fight together with Assad against the opposition. However, he does not want too much to let the Iranians to control uh, uh, Syria. And I must say that in a very professional way, uh, uh, Putin is playing the role uh, in a very, very delicate, delicate way. Um, uh, don't forget that uh, for us, the Iranians is a, is a number one enemy. And at the same time, Putin is very friendly with, you know, with the Israeli government. So in one hand, we are playing the role of attacking the uh, foreign bases, Iranian bases in Syria. Uh, and uh, for a long time, we had a, we had a, a some kind of collision between the Israeli forces and the Russian forces. It was very very sensitive about five years ago. However, step by step, as long as Putin and Assad controlling the opposition in Syria, we are more and more more free to operate in Syria. At the beginning, you know, we were not allowed to to fly. Any by any way in the northern part of Syria, any every time when it was closer to the Russian uh, Russian uh, deploying uh, forces in in Syria, uh, we were focusing only on the southern part of uh, of uh, Russia. But recently, when 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 Putin and Assad, when actually Putin, when he feels that he uh, he that he controlling the area uh, 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 very strongly and very in, in a very stable way, we are free to attack almost all over Syria. Why we do it? We do it to prevent, you know, the invention of of uh, the deployment and the invention of the Iranians in Syria. Uh, we try, uh, you know, to pinpoint those bases and Iranian forces, there is some collateral, collateral damage anyway. However, we succeeded, and this is thanks you know, to, the, uh, to the advanced technology and advanced uh, um, uh, intelligence information the Israelis. Every time when you hear that there was attack 
led by the Israelis uh, in Syria against Iranian uh, bases or Iranian forces. It was done, first of all, from extended range. So we were able not to get into the envelope of the anti-air missiles. That's one thing. So we, we could keep it you know, very safe for our pilot. That's one thing. The other thing that we almost free to fly over Lebanon, so we can do it from uh, uh, above Lebanon territory into Syria without entering into Syria with this very smart and sophisticated extended range ammunition. So the bottom line is that we are not, have not yet succeeded to get rid of the Iranians in Syria. However, we put a lot of obstacles and we delay what they want to do. And we play in, in a political way by diplomacy with the with the Russians vis-a-vis -vis Putin. And the, the, the bottom line is that if I would have, if, you, if, if one would have looked at Syria, if we have not done what we have done there in the last five years, you could see that the Iranians are all over. Now they are here and there. They do uh, some deployments all over. They insisting, you know, to keep this momentum. However, it is much, 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 much lower than it could be if Israel would not been uh, continually attacking uh, uh, Iranians' bases in, uh, in Syria. So we are talking about the balance of power between the three, the three powerful entities in the areas, the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrians, and the Israelis. There is one player that we should mention, also uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Turk. The Turk are concerned on one thing. Their concern is the Kurds in the northern part of, uh, of Lebanon on the border of, uh, of between, between uh, Turkey and, uh, and Lebanon. And it was very, again, this was very complicated situation because at the beginning, the Americans were supporting the Kurds. And then one day when they decided to withdraw after they finished, uh, you know, with the ISIS, they finished their campaign, they withdrew, they left, you know, the, the, the Kurds behind. And now the Kurds, they left the Kurds to deal, you know, with the Turkish by themselves, which reduces the power. And it invited the, uh, the Turkish, you know, to, uh, to uh, enter on a, uh, uh, only on the northern part of Lebanon, but also to enter and control at least those areas where the Kurds are located. So this is a little bit about uh, about uh, about uh, Syria. I must say, uh, you know, a few words about the Americans in Syria. The American in Syria, they were very much involved. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. We know that they lost a lot of soldiers over there. They were involved, they were involved in Syria, fighting against ISIS. The policy of President Obama was to withdraw from, uh, from uh, Syria and the Middle East in general. His policy was uh, delayed due to the fact that the ISIS was very active at that time. And then when the, uh, when the uh, uh, President Trump took the office, it was very much the end of ISIS. And for him, he accelerated you know, the evacuation of American forces in, uh, in Syria. And we will talk about it uh, in regard to the entire area. However, 
we have to remember this. After he had done one operation, actually Trump was, uh, 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 he needed to deal with the same situation as uh, President Barack Obama when, they, uh, when the Syrians were using uh, you know, chemical weapons. Uh, Obama spoke a lot, but he never attacked. And then when Trump took, uh, uh, when the, the Trump was in power and he had to deal with the same thing, he actually launched an attack, a massive attack with, you know, cruise missiles. However, in my mind, in my op op opinion, I think that it was like 70 or 80 percent to, sh to, 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 uh, to show, look, I do the opposite from uh, President Obama. And because it was a single operation and then he left and I don't know how much it was, you know, it was threatening, you know, the Syrians from reusing a nuclear weapons. Since then, they did not have to deal with such a, you know, a, a big problem, a big situation in Syria. So they had no motivation to use again a chemical weapon, but I'm not sure if this attack was any, anyhow effective. Okay, so we, we, we see that the Americans are out. We see that the last attack was, you know, launched by, by, by Trump and the area was left to the Russians and the Israelis and we do what we have to do against the Iranians. This is how we, so, we see uh, Syria. Um, maybe here also the bottom line is that we don't foresee in the near future any uh, proactive attack from you know the Hezbollah against Israel. However, if it, it if it will happen, or it will happen somehow as a rendezvous between Hezbollah and the Iranians close to the Golan Heights, there were some indication for that in the last two years. And every time when we uh, when we uh, saw that this something like that is happening, any cooperation between Hezbollah, not the Syrians, because they stay, they stay behind, between Hezbollah and the Iranians along the Golan Heights uh, border, uh, there was immediately, immediately a reaction from the Israeli uh, uh, military. And, uh, uh, and uh, it was stopped, it was stopped. So the Iranians even backed to the, uh, uh, to the center of Syria and northern of Syria, they still look for places where they can, uh, you know, they can move on their logistic into Syria. And so we can detect it. We can know exactly where they are, when they are. We know every move. And from time to time, at the right time, the right place and the right situation, Israel is launching a targeting, targeting attack, singular attack with a minimum collateral uh, damage. And thanks God, so far, with an exception of one case that we lost at F-16, actually it was in the Israeli, Israeli territory, we lost no soldier, no, um, no uh, equipment over the uh, land of Lebanon and the land of Syria. So this is how we see uh, Lebanon and Syria. Now let's talk about Iran a little bit. Um, well, we all know yeah, we together we experience, you know, the, the long run of, uh, of uh, many, uh, you know, experiences to sign the agreement, which eventually was signed back in, in 1916. Just to remind you, I don't know if everybody is, um, 
is uh, aware of it. But you know that actually the Iranians' uh, nuclear uh, program started back in early 70s. And it was led by the Shah. The Shah uh, uh, actually initiated the nuclear uh, uh, in a low, in a low, uh, the low key, and uh, with a very slow acceleration. However, he was the one. And I tell you more than that. After the revolution in 1979, the Ayatollahs actually they say that this is against the uh, against uh, the uh, 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 the religion, and actually they put some action in order to stop, even to terminate this uh, nuclear program. But it takes just a few years, a very small years, when they face the fight, the, uh, the war between Iraq and Iran, when the Iraqis suffered a lot, when the Iranians suffered a lot, actually they lost this war, in Saddam Hussein, from Iraq, he did not hesitate to use their chemical weapons, and they suffered, suffered a lot of casualties. Then for them, they realized that politically and for the security of Iran, for them it is important to, to, resume, to resume the nuclear uh, uh, program. I can tell you one thing, that Israel was very much concerned about this program starting in the early 90s. And I tell, you, I tell you a very small story based on my experience and my history in the Air Force. Uh, you know that when Clinton was the president and after, uh, after the Iraqi uh, war, the Desert Storm, the first one in 1991, uh, uh, President Clinton was anxious you know, to help Israel and to support Israel. When Rabin told him that our threat is coming from you know, 2,000 kilometers away, we don't have an ammunition, we don't have the means to, to get there. Then it was decided to give Israel, you know, the F-15I, which was the biggest, the most advanced at that time, even more than F-35 today uh, to Israel. And Israel had, and, and Rabin had a dilemma. For the same amount of money, he could buy like 50, 50 uh, F-16s, or for the same amount of money to buy only 25 F-15s. Since the F-15 was the answer against, or at least a singular answer against the Iranians, so he decided to give up 25 pieces, you know, to shrinking the entire fleet of the Israeli Air Force, but yet to having an F-15 and to let the Iranians know that in case we need it, in case they force us to do what, they, what, what you know, what we need to do, we have the capability, obviously, not to conquer or, you know, to, to demolish the entire Iran, but at least as a, as a retaliation to, to reach Iran on a very strategic point. As a retaliation, it was very important for Israel at that time. Since then, we have been trying a lot to do in order to stop the, the uh, the uh, nuclear program, and let me and let now let's together jump to the beginning of uh, 2000, and then 2010, 9, 10, and 11, when uh, uh, when we all know when uh, when uh, uh, when uh, uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, actually uh, uh, 
uh, uh, became the prime minister of Israel, and for him, it was the highest priority. But let me tell you one thing. For the first time, when Rabin, uh, excuse me, when uh, Bibi Netanyahu met with Obama, after Obama was elected, it was a very, very, uh, I would say, uh, I don't know, it was, it was like a confrontation between these two guys. And the issue was the following. President Obama was telling uh, 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 Bibi Netanyahu, look, I will support you, but I want you to understand, go with me vis-a-vis the Palestinians, and then when we finish this problem, I will support you with the problem vis-a-vis Iran. Bibi was saying the opposite. First of all, I want to deal with Iran. And secondly, then we sit down and discuss how to deal with the Palestinians. From then on, there was a dispute between these two uh, leaders. But it all was uh, uh, specifically uh, based on, uh, on this event, you know? Uh, this guy wanted first Palestine, Palestinians, Palestinian issue, and the other guy wanted, you know, the Iranian issue. Uh, Bibi went brute force and put a lot of money to build more and more military power against the Iranians and to actually to send a message to the entire world, mainly, mainly to the uh, White House, that we are seriously intend to do what, what we need to do in order to stop the, uh, the, uh, uh, the program. Anyhow, this never happened. It never happened, and it never happened for many reasons. I don't want to, to uh, actually, if you were asking me at that time, I would say it will not happen. And, uh, and there are many reasons that I, would, I don't want to now to, uh, to get into details on that. However, it never happened. And when this never happened, then of course we all know uh, how much power and how much uh, President Obama put on the, uh, you know, trying to, to cut the deal between uh, uh, you know the international community and the Iranians uh, about the uh, the nuclear uh, uh, nuclear program. Uh, let me say a few words about uh, uh, about uh, uh, the uh, about the nuclear nuclear problem. First of all, we all talk about you know the the key the key element is the enrichment of uh, of the uranium. Uh, we all hear numbers. We hear three point five percent enrichment. We hear twenty percent enrichment, and we hear you know one hundred percent or ninety five percent. Let me say just one thing. Uh, you know, there is, there is a lot of offers. Excuse me for such a second. Okay, okay excuse me. So 90%, so in, in order to enrich uranium uh, up to 3.5%, uh, it takes a long time and a lot of efforts. When you have reached that, then the second stage is which is uh, a little bit easier, a little bit shorter, and then to reach 20%. And from 20%, although you still have to enrich 80%, you can do it with no time. 
So the crucial percentage of enrichment, enrichment is 3.5%. So the key and the agreement between the international community and the Iranians that you stop enrichment where you were less than a hundred kilogram of 3.5% enrichment. All the rest, in case you have it, you will destroy it to stop there. And then number two was that the facilities for the enrichment of Iranian will be destroyed. This was number two as part of the agreement. Number three was that the number of uh, centrifuges was cut down from 19,000 to 5,000. And of course, they stopped all R&D about uh, uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear, nuclear program. The alternative way to develop a nuclear weapon instead of uranium is to produce plutonium. So, and they also had uh, facilities uh, to uh, develop uh, a nuclear weapon using plutonium. And part of the agreement was these uh, facilities should be stopped and the core of the facilities should be destroyed. And forever, they will not resume any plutonium activities. And, uh, and of course, the, the last point was that the inspectors had a free uh, way, uh, you know, to check and to inspect every spot in, in Iran. Actually, this, uh, this uh, uh, part, uh, I think, humiliated the Iranians the most. You know, that you know that in your own country, international team can go over and check every small, every spot all over Iran. But also there was a minor, a minor uh, things also, actually they were saying that the, um, the, 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 the Iranians will forever, you know, they will not uh, resume any military uh, nuclear uh, program which they never actually intended seriously, but it was part of the agreement. So now let's say that they have, they would have succeeded to develop a nuclear weapon. So I took here a small diagram uh, and I want you to take a look at this diagram. The figures are in miles and the distances are in miles. And uh, the two circles which we are interested in is a total damage and a medium damage, which is 1.6 miles and 3.2 miles. Uh, and, and actually the example here is, uh, is, a, is a bomb where the capacity of the one that was dropped uh, you know, on the Hiroshima. This is, uh, in, in terms of figures, this is about 20,000 kiloton. Ton. In ever, the analysts, this is what they say total damage in 1.6 and medium damage in 3.2. Now, if I put these circles on Tel Aviv, you can see here that the, uh, that the red circle is inside the 1.6 uh, mile and the uh, blue circle is the 3.2 uh, miles. And uh, this is what it may cost Tel Aviv. So this is to show you that, of course, it's, 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 it's a disaster. However, what I want to show you is that people sometimes think about 
a nuclear weapon can destroy the entire Israel in one bomb. This is not true. These are the figures. These are the proportions, what you see here on the, uh, on the aerial uh, uh, photo. That's one thing. The other thing is that we know about the number of casualties in Hiroshima, which were, which were uh, some hundred thousand of thousands of people. However, this was because of the way that Hiroshima uh, infrastructure and buildings were built in the modern in the Western world. And in Tel Aviv, it is much solid and much stronger. So we even believe that the number of casualties in case, God forbid, it never happened, and I'm going to say something about it, the number of casualties will be much less. Now, let's talk about the possibility and the intention behind the program of the uh, Iranian leadership. I myself and many others, they will not say it publicly, but, uh, but no country, no leadership in the world, including the Iranians, when they develop something like this, it doesn't mean that once they have it, the day after they will drop it. I don't see any regime that will survive after their leaders will use a nuclear weapon. So you may ask, why do they need it? Why need a nation need to having a nuclear weapon? So the, it might be two reasons. The first reason, if this is a case like North Korea, for instance, that they have to make sure and to ensure they are existential. That's one thing. And the other thing which is related to Iran, that this is the backbone of their power, not only a military power, but a political power for their intention to control and to take the hegemony of the entire Arab world in the Middle East. This hegemony used to be in the heads of Egypt for a while, a little bit from time to time, Erdogan in Turkey was trying to do that. And the Iranians believe that they need this weapon in order to back and to secure themselves when they use terrorism all over and politically where they have enough power to have most influence on the entire country here in the region. So we should not look at it as something that once they have it, they will drop it. But we do have to be very much concerned what kind of Iran will be once they have it in their hand. It will be totally different. And this is why I justify the fact that all leaders by, you know, first of all, the Israelis and the Americans and the Europeans are so much concerned never to let the Iranians to having the, uh, the uh, uh, weapon system. So now, a uh, big question. President Trump have done what he has done in uh, uh, relate to, uh, to the agreement. And he was hoping that sooner or later, the Iranians will come back and they will ask to renegotiate but from different uh, position. Um, when, you know, in a few days, President Biden will enter the, the White House and I am sure that this is going to be uh, on his table as part of the agenda maybe for the first six months or eight months or 10 months, 
Probably he will be focusing on the uh, uh, pandemic in America. However, yet you need to deal with an international, uh, you know, issues. And this would be probably number one. So I think that Biden has three options. Theoretically, he has three options option how to deal with it. Number one is just to continue the uh, current situation, meaning like Trump, he will wait until he will get a phone call from, uh, from uh, uh, Khomeini and he will ask for negotiating and then obviously he will negotiate with him and, and hoping you know, to have the same achievements as Trump was dreaming you know, to, to achieve. This was number one. Number two option is to attack, uh, to decide that uh, you know, he will open, uh, I would say some kind of uh, uh, nuclear, uh, not nuclear, but uh, conventional war in order to dismantle the entire facilities in Iran which I think that these two options are not likely, you know, practical. The third option is to initiate negotiation. And for that, once he, once he uh, selected this uh, option, I would say that any president, including Mr. Biden, President Biden, what they have to do is, first of all, to understand what everybody understand, that you're not sitting around the negotiation table unless, unless you have a, a, a leverage on the other side. You need to have a strong leverage on the other side, otherwise you lost the game. So how do you get a leverage if you don't attack? Well, I would ask him, I would suggest to him to look back to 1961-61 when the crisis, uh, the Cuba missiles, uh, uh, ballistic missiles uh, occurred. And, uh, and uh, very briefly, just to tell you what was the uh, strategy, how to deal with the crisis then, and you might uh, actually apply the same technique here in this uh, in this case, what President Kennedy, after you know he failed, they failed, you know the attack in the Pig uh, Bay, uh, which was a military, very very uh, bad military operation. Uh, now they raises the readiness, the military readiness up to a maximum, even until he put the uh, nuclear. Uh, weapons in a highest le level. Highest level meaning that bombers carrying uh, nuclear weapons were flying all over the Pacific. And under the, uh, the atmosphere of this threat, the entire world was, you know, shaking that something is going to happen under the radar. At the same time, he sent his brother to meet with a Russian ambassador in Washington and he started negotiation. So when you negotiate against the other side, with the other side, under you know, the pressure, the military pressure, then at least you have some leverage that you can get what you want to get. On the other hand, I must say that the expectation of the Europeans and the Iranians and even the Americans that he will be a much nicer person to deal with. 
So, but it doesn't work for a long time. I mean, you have to ask him, you have to show that you're serious, but you should not forget, you know, to build around the area a military option coordinated with the Israelis and the other concerning, you know, countries in the area. And this leads me, you know, to the normalization. And I can understand, if I put aside for a second the Israeli interest, I can understand that the coalition, which as we speak, it is being formalizing, you know, the Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Qatar, uh, and even Sudan, which are a little bit, you know, out of the game. But the coalition, which is formed for many reasons, but a very uh, effective uh, impact is the fact that if the entire coalition play the same role, military-wise, as well as politically-wise, against Iran, led by the American president in a very serious way, under a very strong pressure against the Iranians, but being very polite, asking them even to join the new normalization in the Middle East. If you are patient enough, you know, with the Arabs, you have to be very patient. Uh, and with the Muslims here in the area, you have to be very patient. And you do it slowly by slowly, maybe this is the only way to achieve a good result. So it brings me, as I said, to, uh, uh, to the point where this normalization maybe is the most important is the forming of this normalization uh, 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 coalition. But I want to indicate one more thing, uh, which is important from the Israeli perspective. Where is the danger here in the, in the new atmosphere and a new uh, geopolitical situation in the Middle East? You know, for many years, Israel was like a single sun here in the area. So America put all the money on Israel, 100%, you know, to trust Israel back in the days of the Soviet Union, obviously, but also in the last years, Israel is someone that you can trust, totally trust. Not only that then, but more than that, uh, you know, uh, the, the Americans have to deploy forces into Afghanistan, to deploy forces into Iraq, to deploy forces into Turkey even, and to deploy forces into the Emirates, they have some bases. The only place where all you have to do is to give money is to Israel. You give money and we do the job for the Americans in the Middle East. People ask how come that we for so many years in such a stable way, we receive uh, $3.5 billion every year so uh, it has many, you know, many reasons, but the main reason is this is the alternative that they spend the money to buy ammunition, to buy airplanes, to buy weapon systems in the United States being used to keep the interest of the American here in the Middle East. And if you look even, even in Egypt, when they don't deploy forces, you can see that the Egyptians even, they get money actually one third of the amount of uh, 
support or annual support that Israel is receiving from the American government. However, they do get money in order to keep the interest of the Americans. But the Americans are very concerned about the stability, you know, and the democracy in Egypt. They don't have this concern in here, uh, this kind of concerns here in, uh, in Israel. So things are being changed in a way that the benefit that we enjoyed by being the only and the only one here in the Middle East, it is now balanced by the fact that the threats around are reducing slowly but slowly, and we are part of the coalition. We are all against the Iranians as a coalition, but we should not forget that here in the Middle East, sometimes, you know, it's flipped off. And when it does, and the Emirates has F-35 in the, uh, in the maybe soon uh, also the uh, Saudis will have it and so and so and so. We need to keep our eyes open, uh, you know, uh, the Israeli military and the intelligence here, but at the same time to keep a very close discussion with the American, with the White House, no matter who is sitting in the bar in the White House, telling them, look, we are, we, are, we have a lot of benefits from new policy. We have a lot of benefits from this uh, new normalization here in the Middle East, but it keeps us under some kind of, ray of, of, uh, of uh, danger in which all of a sudden the situation or any or one of the country can flip off and take, you know, the other direction. So this is how I read uh, very briefly, you know, the situation in the Middle East, in vis-a-vis uh, -vis the new normalization in the Middle East. But I don't want to finish without saying a few words uh, about the Palestinians. You know, we have been talking for the last 40 minutes, um, you know, about um, the situation here, and we were focusing about the current and the immediate situation here in the Middle East. But, you know, as every country and every leaders, you have to think in the long term. And we should not fall asleep in regards to the conflict with the Palestinians. Because despite of the fact that it is now the main issue, I have, a, a, however, the problem is the same problem. Meaning that that if this is not number one on the agenda in these days, but is still on the agenda, it must be on the agenda for the long term of, uh, of the Israeli government. And in order to say, you know, that the main, the main terrorism was, you know, was an issue for many years. Um, the number, the activities, I mean, we were able to control it. The, Amer the uh, Palestinians are in a way, with the exception of, the, uh, of uh, Gaza, uh, they, are, uh, they are under fatigue, so they don't act as they use, you know, like 10 or 15 years, the first intifada and the second intifada, and in between, and the Hezbollah in the, in the north. What you see now is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit freeze. It's a bit calm, at, at, you know, at this moment. However, I want to remind you, in this case, this is, a case, this is a problem of, you know, territory, 
and demography. demography. In order to give you a glimpse of how the problem has been developed since the independence of Israel, I'm not taking you, you know, 100 years ago, but I want to show you some maps and then to lead you to some conclusion, if I may. This map was, you know, the United Nations uh, uh, decision back in uh, 40, uh, 47, uh, which, uh, you know, the decision was to divide the country between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The green area is uh, Jews, and the gray area or the uh, or the red area is the uh, is territories which was uh, under this uh, resolution uh, was uh, you know given to the uh, to the Palestinians, and we all know they were we accepted it, Bengalian accepted it, and we uh, and we uh, and the Palestinians were against it, and this is how the war broke out. If you look. If you look at the map after independence, after 48, and until 67, this was Israel, with the exception of Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank, and Judea and Sumeria. If you count the if you if you count the population in this what we call it, we call it inside, we call it, we call it inside the green line. You know, the green line was the border, you know, between Israel and the Palestinians between 48 and 67. Inside the green line, uh, today, the proportion between Jews and Palestinians is less than 20% Palestinians, more than 80% Jews and others. This proportion, I mean, any country which has minority can live forever, no problem. However, we proceed and after uh, uh, 60, uh, after uh, 67, actually we took, uh, you know, the West Bank, the Golan Heights and, and uh, Gaza and the map that you see here is under the Oslo Agreement. Look at the map, how it looked like. You know, Oslo Agreement divided the area into three different areas, region A, B, and C. A is being uh, controlled totally, including security by the Arab. B is, you know, is a coordination between the Israelis and the Arabs, and C, is totally by the Israelis. This was the map, the outcome map of uh, of uh, you don't of uh, Oslo Agreement. You don't have to look into too many many details, just to look how how difficult and how not rational this area uh, uh, could be. And we are not surprising that it never, you know, it couldn't last forever. I mean, people, at least from our side when they were in favor of the agreement, of Oslo agreement, we were in favor of it, but what we had in mind that this is only a mid-term, mid-term solution. And at the end of the day, we will find a way how to divide the country into two states. Uh, then, uh, 
you know, we go forward. And uh, what we see here is uh, the Israeli proposal in uh, Camp David. And in Camp David, we were talking about, you can see uh, here, you know, what we, what we call it, the main settlements here in this area will remain part of Israel. We have a corridor down to the, uh, to the Jordan River, Jordan Valley. This area forever to keep the border, oops, uh, will remain under control of Israel. And if you see the yellow area is a leasing for a hundred years and after a hundred years, we give it back to the Palestinians. This was Camp David uh, agreement and to give instead of this area to swap and give some areas here to the Palestinians as a swap, a 50-50% swap, okay? So this has been, you know, under talking for years and years since also Oslo agreement until a few years ago, when also it was shut down. And then uh, we come to uh, uh, another option, which was the most, you know, contributing, you know, contribution to the Palestinians. And it was given by Prime Minister Olmert to uh, Abu Mazen. This was about few weeks, maybe, few weeks before he resigned and had to leave the office. But look what he was giving. He said to, uh, I give you all this green area. We keep only those, uh, you know, condensed uh, um, uh, Israeli settlements. And we give you, instead of this, we give you a piece here and a corridor between the West Bank and Gaza. And here, a few pieces also here. Take it or leave it. Sign it. It was, I think, if someone will tell the story or if we had the, a camera, uh, like they say, uh, you know, uh, a fly in the room, which was more, which was looking at what's going on in the table. He put the map on the table and he said, take it. Nobody before have given the Palestinians more than that, in, with the exception of the UN back in 47, okay? And he never took it. He took the map, he left the room, and he never came back to, uh, to Olmert. This is um, Mr. Uh, this is Mr. Trump plan, you know, to give the Palestinians this gray, gray area and to keep full control on, the, control on these areas by the Israelis, also here around, and to give some pieces here and here to the Palestinians as a swap. And again, what President uh, uh, Trump was saying, take it or leave it. Now let me tell you one thing. So let's let's take a quick look again. We start here, 50-50% or maybe exactly 48.5% of the territory was given to the Palestinians. 
and 52% was given to the Israelis. 48, the Palestinians said no for 48.5% of the territory. Now here, obviously, they always say no. When we gave them the option to having, you know, like the, the Olmer plan or Camp David plan, the, 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 the uh, size of the area that was giving, was offering to the Palestinians was reduced from 48 to 23, 23, 24%. They said no. What Mr. Trump is offering them is less than 14, 14% of the territory. And they kept saying all the time, no and no. Now someone has to ask himself, why? Why for so long and for so many offers, they say no. They say no, in my opinion, which back in their mind, they see the alternative and the alternative that they will be part of Israel. And just to give you a glimpse of what is the, pop, the, pop, the, the proportion between the two population, Palestinians and Israel in 2019 and 2034, when Gaza is included. And if Gaza is not included, this is the proportion. I don't see any way how Gaza is not included. In another, word, in another words, what I'm trying to say is that under the table, either some of them are aware of it or some of them are not aware of it, under the table, there is a secret plan and the Palestinians is thinking, we say no for any, uh, uh, any proposal to divide the country into two states because at the end of the day, it will be one state. And if the momentum of normalization in the entire region and the normalization between Israelis and Palestinians inside the green line, where you saw 18%, today it's almost 20%, why not to include also the Palestinians in the West Bank or in Judea and Samaria and Gaza? And the way I see it, I myself see it, that if you let, if we let the uh, train to leave the station, we wake up one day and we see that the option, technically the option of dividing the country is not an option anymore. And then we find ourselves on a track to live together with the Palestinians around 50, 50%. Or in another word, if you look, if you want to look at it uh, 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 graphically, I say that if you, if number one, map number one is, you know, dividing the the country according to the uh, Camp David Agreement, or more or less. Or if you do something like map number two, even if you do it. The reality, the day-to-day -day life and the reality for one or two or three generations somehow 
we lead you even without a decision, we lead you into, unfortunately, into a one state in which I think the biggest threat of Israel, unless God will help something happen, they leave, they evacuate the area, they uh, will join maybe the 4 million uh, refugees around the world. They prefer to live in the different places and we will be able to keep proportion of 30 to 70 or 25 to 75, but to live in a one territory with 50-50 when they have back in their mind uh, a plan somehow to do the utmost, you know, to be, to, to, to melt, I don't know how to say it in English, into the Jewish and the Israeli community, it will take, and we know the, the Arabs here in the area, they have a lot of patience for them, two or three generations is nothing. They can wait two or three generations and God forbid this might happen. So by saying that, I think we still have the option how, what to do and how to do. I don't want to touch it at this time, but, uh, but we need to take it in consideration that this kind of threat, if this is not for sure the future, but this is a possible future. Thank you very much. Eitan, thank you. That um, that was quite an, an, an impressive uh, walk through the uh, the broad uh, challenges across the Middle East, from a historical to today, and and across uh, across the, the the whole landscape, and and of course, uh, then touching on on the the longer term situation with the Palestinians. Let let me let me raise a couple of questions with you. I won't touch the last one because I think that will. That in itself is a is a is a is a is a much longer conversation than we have time for tonight. But let me touch on two or three uh, questions that um, uh, that that uh, you you spoke a bit about. Um, maybe starting with with the Iran situation. Uh, I think you you underscored the key imperative for not letting Iran have a nuclear weapon for Israel's sake, for the region's sake, for the world's sake. Um, how would you think about now that the whole JCPOA with the new Biden administration about to assume office, how would you think about the asks of what to change in that JCPOA going forward from what it was in 2015, where now five years later, clearly Iran has violated a number of the, uh, the enrichment uh, levels, if you will, in that agreement. And beyond the focus on just the nuclear agreement, as some commentators have talked about, would you also insist on including the missile development program, the ballistic missile development program of Iran, the regional uh, destabilizing activities that we, we certainly, uh, you spoke about a number of those. Um, and and, and the, then from a practical and realistic point of view, in the absence of a US willingness to leverage its military option, which it under the last two administrations has been unwilling to do, um, and in fact, pulling out of the Middle East more, more so than, than engaging, um, is there sufficient leverage from just the sanctions uh, to get that kind of agreement that uh, that you would might like? And if and if there isn't, you know, is there a realistic military option without the U.S. Um, with the coalition that you touched on, Israel and its newfound coalition across uh, across the Middle East? Well, <laughs> you touched, uh, you know, um, many, many points, many aspects, you know, of this dilemma. Let me try to start one by one. First of all, 
Well, theoretically, there is an option to execute the military, uh, you know, together with the coalition without the Americans, but not without the support of the American government, a full support, active support. In other words, you know, back in 67, in 73, when we have lost, you know, about 40% of our Air Force, there was a military uh, logistic uh, uh, train flying from United States to Israel, you know, with ammunition and airplanes and, and, and boats and everything. So you need to have a, a very decisive, strong and stable support from the American if you do try and dare to do what you have to do. Now, two points. One, one there is a coalition, but without the American, there is no leader. In other words, we still don't have a common language with these countries in order to go so far and to coordinate a, a, a mutual you know, attack against Iran. That's one thing. But the other thing is the following. This is not kind of an attack like in, in Iraq or in Syria that you destroy the, uh, the power plant and then, and then and it's gone. We are talking about the national assets. It might be a continuing operation of not only weeks, maybe sometimes months and in order to be able to continue and to keep on going for such a long time without full support from America and Europe, no way to do it. And you may find yourself that they survived. And if they survived, and once you have gone one third of the way or, or, or half away, they will be the winner. They might be, they consider themselves as the winner. But having said that, if you do have the support and you start, which is somehow related you know, to the opening of my discussion, and you invite the Iranians to talk, to talk you know, face to face with the American while we are attacking, this might be an option. So you're not, you're not counting on destroying the entire facilities in, but you do initiate. Let me remind you, you know what Sadat said, what Sadat have done in 73? He said, I'm not going to conquer and to take back Sinai. All I have to do is to cross the Suez Canal to the other side and I will initiate the peace, uh, the peace uh, talk. Uh, in other words, otherwise it will not move. I mean, it, forever it will stay the same. So you combine the using of the military but the final solution is on the table of negotiation. I'm not saying that you are not using it, you are using it. And if I say a combination of the coalition is acting in the American taking you know, the, the political track, then it might be an, an option. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is, look, they do what they do. And they, these are signals you know, to show two things. First of all, you see, we have not surrendered. That's one thing. This is why they do what they do every other day. They they even, you know, started. The, now you know the figures, but they say we will continue to enrich uranium, uranium more and more uh, amount up to twenty percent, which is very close, you know, to one hundred percent. 
uh, they do what they do, but no doubt that they are, they are not showing it and they survive, but they are under a very, very high pressure because of the sanctions. So I think for them, the best thing to do is to cut a deal and to remove the sanctions. This is highest priority and they are willing to give up. If they were willing to give up the, uh, the nuclear uh, for 15 years under the agreement with Obama, they for sure will do it uh, now. The biggest question, if you do it in a smart, sophisticated way when you, when you sit down and deal with them, don't underestimate the Iranians. They are maybe one of the most ancient, you know, uh, 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 country and people as a nation in this area. They are smart. They know what they do. They are very smart in negotiating, negotiating, and they are even smart in technology today. And this touches the other thing that you were saying. You were touching, you know, the uh, the uh, issue of ballistic missiles. They they do have and they did have ballistic missiles of, for the last 25 years or 30 years, but only in the last five years, what they have is they have what we call it a terminal guidance, which means an accurate missiles. And this is a game changer. If they are capable to reach the distance to this area, saying Israel or other countries in, in the region, and I remind you that two years ago, the attack, uh, they attacked uh, the, uh, the oil facilities in, uh, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia with a smart and, and, and uh, accurate uh, missiles, not ballistic, they were cruise missiles, and they caused a lot of damage with a very short and very, you know, singular and targeted attack. So, uh, so you have to you have to look around, and I think this is the best interest of everybody to resolve the problem by negotiation, to reach an agreement which is much better than the one. I have some uh, some uh, points, at least which I know that were raised by the Israelis, uh, you know, before, you know, when. Uh, when the uh, uh, President Trump backed, you know, from the agreement, they were trying to convince the American to change the agreement. And there are about five to 10 points now to improve. But I think now it's time to even get a better than we were, yeah. you know, indicating yeah. at that, uh, at that yeah. time. No, very, very interesting, very helpful. And I know you have some personal perspective as well. I know your father was born in Iran and so it's uh, an additional kind of perspective that I'm sure you have on the negotiating style and abilities Correct. there. You know, you know um, by the way, you know that I've been, I've been in Iran. I have been there back in 1971, in the days of, of the Shah. It's interesting because, uh, you know, they are, uh, they are more rich than Israel. They used to have the same equipment. They had Phantoms, F4, fighters, Americans. We, we we also had the same airplanes, but they, they had the money to also to buy a simulator for training the pilots. We did not have it. So under the good relations between Israel and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the Shah, 
he was invited, group of pilots, I was a, a phantom pilot at that time, to go to Iran for 10 days or two weeks, I don't remember exactly. And we were training the, uh, you know, the Iranian F-4 Phantom simulator in Iran. So I even fascinating, had fascinating. You know, the opportunity <laughs> to visit Iran. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Eitan, let me wrap up with one last question. I, I know we're running a little long, um, but this is fascinating topics, obviously. And maybe shifting gears a little bit to talk about what's on everybody's mind as well, which is the pandemic and the vaccine rollout. Um, Israel has clearly been, for those that have followed this, you know, by far the world leader in very rapidly and efficiently vaccinating its population. Um, and you know, one statistic that to me is striking, Israel is about 0.1% of the world's population, but about 10% of all vaccinated individuals now for COVID-19 are Israelis, which is a kind, kind of an astounding statistic. And so while this pandemic and, and, and a vaccine role is obviously not a military challenge, perhaps there are some parallels. And I just wonder if there are a few lessons that Israel perhaps can teach the world in terms of preparedness and how to deal with this national, indeed, obviously global crisis such as uh, we are facing now. Right. Okay. Let me tell you these three or four points very briefly. One, you have to think about it in advance. I say, if you are in the middle of the crisis, some people don't think of the day after or two or three or two or three months ahead. I think the key point is to know back in, you know, like four or five months that we need to be the first one and start to put pressure on the, uh, on the producer that we need the vaccine. In other words, we were proactive at a very early stage. This is number one, okay? Number two is obviously the relations that uh, Mr. Netanyahu has and also the Israeli has. And also, you know, the good connection between Jews around the world. I mean, you use it and you use it to create, uh, you know, contacts. And I think uh, uh, the, uh, we, we, our, our government was smart enough, not only the prime minister, mainly the prime minister, but also the, uh, the minister of health and, you know, all the others who were playing some roles in this. Uh, so negotiate and to negotiate and to cut the deal even before, not to wake up after one day that you say, okay, now we have the vaccine, let's talk. We were talking with them about the vaccine much earlier than the, when they had it ready. And the last point, which is the most important, and it has some connection with the military. Israeli has the best health, a public health system in the world. And the reason why we do it, once we have it in our hand, the reason why we are capable to uh, vac vac vaccinate, vaccinate, 150,000 people a day is because we have these three organizations, which are public health organization, and they were ready. We deployed those stations in this area with volunteers and people were, you know, injection the vaccine like a, <laughs> like a, like an automatic machine. I don't see how Americans will do it, even if they have it. I don't see how other countries are doing. So, in, and again, you have to be prepared in advance. But the fact that we had those organization, health organization, in which we could uh, uh, 
facilitate, you know, the operation to do it so fast was a key uh, point, you know, in order to do what we have done. And the last thing you have to be also a little smart and, and I will finish with that. Look, I think that one of the reasons that the Moderna and the, and the Pfizer, those, uh, when they have to prepare like uh, billions of uh, injections, you know, for the entire world, or six or 650 uh, million people in Europe, or 300, or close to 400 in the United States and other, and we are a small country. You go to the Pfizer and to, to tell them, look, for you, it's nothing to give us two million. Two million here, two million there. And we will be your laboratory here. We will be your case there. After a few weeks when we will vaccine, you know, two million people, there is no better proof to the entire world that it works. So, I mean, this was a good reason for them, a good excuse for them to cooperate with us and to give them. If you give one million or two million to Israel, it, it, it costs nothing to America, especially if the America don't have the system to use it, you know, to, uh, uh, and this is how it works. Yeah. And well, very it's similar been, it's to, been... you know, to, to a military, military strategic thinking. Exactly, exactly. No, the parallels are striking and it's, it's, a, it's very impressive what Israel has done and is in the midst of doing. Um, Eitan, listen, th thank you. Thank you so very much for this very fascinating You're discussion, welcome. very fascinating presentation, for taking time out of your schedule this evening to be with us um, on behalf of myself and all of my colleagues at the Open University of Israel. Maybe just as a close, a, a word or two, uh, you know, I think we mentioned at the start, the Open University of Israel is the largest of the nine accredited universities in Israel, over 49,000 students. We have 70 physical campuses spread across Israel in, on top of a very much state-of-the-art online higher education learning platform. And it is really among Israel's most vital institutions, core values based on academic excellence, on an open admissions policy, on social justice, and inclusion of all citizens of Israel. Um, and since its inception in the mid 70s, tens of thousands of students have graduated and about a third, by the way, would not have afforded higher education without the benefit of a robust scholarship program that particularly assists some of the marginalized populations in Israel, including the Haredim, the Arab Israelis, Ethiopians, Druze, underprivileged students and the handicapped. And in doing so, by the way, is one of the key institutions in Israel that helps address some of the key demographic challenges that you touched on a bit. Um, and, and the, the demographic challenges of, of Israel. I want to thank all of you, our audience, for joining us, showing your commitment to Israel and the topics discussed here today. And if you enjoyed this program, hopefully you'll be on the lookout for additional virtual salons we will be hosting. And uh, we all hope as the vaccines roll out, not only across Israel, but across the rest of the world, that at some point in 2021, this year, we will be gathering in person. Um, so in the meantime, Good afternoon, good evening. Stay safe, everyone. And um, we look forward to continuing the dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you, Eitan. Thank you. All the best. Dear listeners, we invite you to support our life-changing mission to further the goals of the Open University of Israel, a pioneer and cutting-edge leader in distance learning, dedicated to educating all those who would otherwise be denied a university education. Please find the donate link inside the episode description. Thank you.